Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to enter in in a few moments in verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we'll enter in in verse 26. Won't go very far. Inch by inch, life's a cinch. Yard by yard, life's way too hard. <laughs> We're just going to inch along. <laughs> Some people say, will you ever get out of this book? Well, I want to tell you something. This is not an easy chapter, as you already know. Slower you go, the safer you are. So for your benefit and my benefit, we're going to ease through it. Now, today we're going to be talking about order in the church. Order in the church. It's humanly impossible to reconstruct the chaos that was going on at the church of Corinth in their public worship services. You say, why is that? I'll tell you why. We've not experienced anything like it, particularly here. They had not experienced anything like it in Ephesus or in Philippi or in Thessalonica. Why? Because Corinth was the only city affected by the oracles of Delphi 30 miles down the road. Of all the letters that Paul wrote, they were the most affected by this. And the pagan idolatry had crept in. And the emotional frenzy that went along with the pagan worship had now crept back into the church. And they thought it was something spiritual. It was a circus. No order in their worship whatsoever. Just chaotic. Paul even says, people come in and see what you're doing. They think you're crazy. They think you're mad. You know, it's interesting that there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Nothing new under the sun. I was watching a television program several years ago when I watched people get down on their hands and their knees and start barking like dogs, started roaring like lions. The pastor would stand up and try to speak while people were laughing so hard it actually became a distraction to him and several times he had to recorrect himself. He couldn't even keep his own attention. And me looking at that program, I thought the exact same words that Paul said, are these people crazy? Nothing new under the sun. You have to understand Corinth. You have to understand Corinth. If you don't, then you, have, you miss everything Paul's dealing with in 12, 13, and 14. The offending obstacle, however, that Paul's dealing with is not anything else on the fringe. There were other things, but the offending obstacle that 14 zeroes in on and stays honed in on that whole chapter is this speaking in an unknown language, a gibberish that no one can understand or could understand. Calling it spiritual, call it whatever you wanted. They, they call it all kinds of things. But that is the problem Paul is dealing with, and he does, he goes about it in a very subtle way. 
to get their attention. He's trying to correct them doctrinally and he's already shown them that speaking in this gibberish was not only wrong, the practice was wrong, but the whole premise was wrong. As a matter of fact, the Bible does speak of speaking in foreign tongues, languages that are understandable, which are not your own. It speaks of that. Now they weren't doing that. They were speaking in a gibberish, but Paul said, hey, come on guys, your whole premise is wrong. Even if you were speaking languages that people could understand your premise is wrong, it is not a spiritual sign for believers. It doesn't prove anything about your spirituality. It was used in scripture as a sign of judgment to Israel. And he points them to this. The explanation of tongue in Isaiah 28, verses 11 through 12 is what he's gonna quote in just a minute. He tells them in verse 20, and as we review, he says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. In other words, if you're gonna think like a child, you're gonna act like a child. Come on, folks, have your minds renewed. Think like a mature person. He says, yet in evil be babes. That word means, hey, be ignorant, not to be ignorant of evil, you always should be knowledgeable, but be innocent when it comes to its practice. The word evil there has to do with fleshly evil, which was a rampage there in Corinth. And he says, but in your thinking, be mature. In other words, grow up, grow up. Stop acting like immature children. Then he takes them to Isaiah's prophecy to show them that their whole premise is wrong. And it says in verse 21, in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And then he explains. So then tongues are, are a sign, yes they are a sign, languages, not what you're doing, but languages, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Prophecy being the telling forth of God's word, the preaching forth of God's word. Now, he points them back to the Old Testament. 800 years before Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, it was prophesied to the nation of Israel that if they didn't repent, if they didn't submit back to God, that God was gonna take them into captivity under the power of Assyria, which exactly what happened. And then 100 years after Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 28, Jeremiah said the same thing and exactly the same thing. And he said, you'll know you're under judgment by the languages spoken to you that you cannot understand. They're foreign languages, languages that are not your own. Same thing happened when they went to Judah, the southern kingdom, went into captivity under Babylon. Then at Pentecost, the judgment fell again. You've rejected the Messiah. You've hung him on a cross as Peter preached to them in chapter two of Acts. And so he says, judgment has now come upon you. Only the difference is this time, they even understood the tongues that were spoken to them, but they were tongues that were not the, the native tongue that they had grown up with. They were the foreign languages of all the people that were there. And did the judgment fall? Did it ever. AD 70 was when the city was destroyed of Jerusalem. The temple was so destroyed, there was not one block left upon another. Just like Jesus said, what happened? And so, the judgments have fallen. Now, it's like Paul is saying, what are you doing? I mean, what's your premise here? Are you going back to something you think is spiritual? You've missed the whole point. And there's no need for it anymore. The judgment's already fallen there on Israel. And I think Paul, what Paul is getting across, and he says it so often in this chapter, is if you're going to speak in another language, at least use that language to prophesy, to teach the word of God. And when you teach the word of God, people's lives will be changed. It'll benefit the whole body. And then he shows us why this is so important in verse 23. You get a little picture here of what their services are like. 
He says, if therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues. He said, now let's just give a hypothetical situation. You're speaking in a gibberish. Let's just say all spoken languages that could be understood by some. And ungifted men, those who are ignorant of this language, and unbelievers enter, will they not say you're mad? They're going to say, what in the world are these people doing? Are they crazy? Then verse 24, but if all prophesy, tell forth the word of God, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, He's convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And he says, now listen, look at the difference in preaching and telling forth the word of God and doing what you're doing. He says, if you tell forth the word of God, if you prophesy, if you preach the word of God, people's lives will be changed no matter what language you preach it in or speak it in. I remember years ago, we went to, to, to Romania under Ceausescu for three years. And many of you remember those days when I would go over there. But then when I came back, we, we also went after the revolution. Matter of fact, for 10 years I've been going over there. And when we went back, they told me, Wayne, the communist halls, the communist halls, they had nice places to meet in and to, nobody else could use. But now that communism was dead, they said, you can go and use these halls. And there's a village over here that has never heard the word of God and so Costello and Mia came to me and said, would you mind going and we'll translate for you? And I'm thinking, man, I, I'm just not the evangelist that some people think I might be. I'm more of an equipper. I'd rather take a guy after he gets saved and build him up in the faith. That's where my gifts seem to be. But I said, hey, the opportunity is there. I'll go. I certainly know the gospel. So we went in and I taught and preached to these precious people, 100 of them that had 100 plus, but I don't, I'm just going to say 100. I don't remember the exact number. But a hundred of them that had never heard the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ in that little village. I told me it had never been preached in that little village. And I'm in a call that was once owned by the communists. And here I am, and I'm trying my best to teach the word, and I'm scared half to death because I don't know if I'm doing it exactly the right way, and I'm going through an interpreter. And at the end of it, I gave the invitation. And it was so interesting, I said, and, I, and when I give an invitation, friend, you, you're going to think it through. I mean, I, I did it so many times, they had to think it through. I make it difficult. I make it very difficult. Are you sure? You understand what you're doing. And I walk them through step by step. And I said, now, how many of you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And every hand in the room went up. And I'm thinking, no, 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 you don't understand. And I went back and I walked through it again. I said, do you understand what I mean by this? And I walked through it, and I mean, I'm very tough on that. I mean, I'm not like some people, just the easy stuff. I, I, I put it down, and they all raised their hands again. And Costello saying, they understand, Wayne, they understand. I said, no, 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 I'm going to do it again. And I did it a third time. And the third time that I did it, they all raised their hand. And, I, and tears just gushed out of my eyes. I'm thinking, Lord, you actually used me. I mean, that's what I was thinking. You actually took what I shared with them. It was like God said to me again when I was studying this, son, stand up, preach the word of God, and men's hearts will be convicted, and men will come to know me because that's me honoring my word. Whatever you say, preach the word of God. That's what Paul's saying. Now, what in the world is going on in Corinth? You can hear the frustration in his voice. You can feel the frustration in Paul, the apostle, trying to get this church to think straight for once. It's the word that changes people's heart, not some emotional frenzy. When people walk in, they'll think you're absolutely crazy. What a difference when the word of God is preached. Well, today... Paul is going to put some order back into their worship, but he's still dealing with that one. Now, now remember this, you're going to get lost. He's still dealing, still, st st still dealing. 
with that one obstacle of speaking in a gibberish in an unknown tongue. A tongue, singular. We've already identified. When it's in plural, it means languages that are understandable. When it's singular, it identifies an unknown gibberish that they were speaking in in that church. So he says in verse 26, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now here, you don't understand any of that until you understand the last part of that verse. The last part of the verse is where he's driving at. He says, let all things be done for edification. Now you've got to see something here or you're going to miss everything. This is a difficult passage, but if you can hold on to the fact that that is the driving force of everything he's saying, you'll be okay. The key is, let all things, when you come together for worship, all things must be done for edification. That is the key to everything he says in these verses. Now, by the phrase, what is the outcome then, brethren? Paul is saying, okay, what's the outcome of my discussion with you so far? I mean, okay, have you learned anything? <laughs> and you have to go back to 25 verses of what he's just been telling them. He said, have you learned anything at all? And then look at the term he uses. What is the outcome? Brethren, what a beautiful thing. Brethren is the, the, the real wonderful term used for a brother at Adelphos. And he says, you're my brothers, you're my brothers. Kind of brings back to my mind chapter four and verse 14 when he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. There's a relationship here. And you tell the people that you love the hard things. And Paul is willing to do that. Paul's standing right in the middle of their emotional frenzy and experience and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But I love you by telling you, you're wrong. Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? When, not if, when you assemble. Now, what did that tell us right there? It tells us right there the necessity of coming together for worship. Hebrews says it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habits of some. Now, I hear some people say, Well, Brother Wayne, Christ lives in my heart, and I can worship God wherever I want to. And you're exactly right. You're exactly right. But that in no way negates the responsibility you have of coming together for corporate worship. I hear a lot of hunters do that to me a lot of times, and fishermen because I like the out of doors. And they'll say, those rednecks come up to me and say, Brother Wayne, I tell you what, out here in the woods, I can really hear from God. And when I'm in a bass boat and I'm throwing that plug, I tell you, well, I can worship out here. Well, sure you can, man, because the Spirit of God lives within you. But does that have anything to do with what, what the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You find a person who forsakes the assembly, you've got somebody who's got a problem in his walk with God. Because when you love him, you're going to love his people and you're going to want to be with them. You don't have to drive it down. Then that would become a law. There's nobody here checking your church attendance. You know, somebody told me recently, said, you're the craziest preacher I've ever been around in my life. <laughs> you know, sometimes when I'll say, go home and ask God, God, you want me to go to church tonight? You want me to sit in the chair and act like a goof off? And I just tell you, do whatever God tells you to do. And somebody said, man, you've got to be meaner than that. <laughs> Why? I'm not keeping score. He just says, if you love him, you're going to love being with his people, period, period. You're going to love assembling yourselves together. So he says, when you come to assemble. So Paul is, is saying a lot more than what meets the eye here. He's addressing their public worship, stuff that's going on in their public worship that's a sham and bringing no glory to God whatsoever. As we enter into their public worship now, let's just see how Paul is going to put some order back into it. Now remember, now remember that his whole key is 
Everything must be done for edification. He said that back in chapter 12, verse 7, didn't he? He said everybody's given a manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. So whatever you do has got to be for the benefit of others or don't walk out and tell somebody you're spiritual because you've had an emotional experience. It means nothing. It means nothing. It's done to edify the body of Christ. So there are two things basically we're going to look at. First of all, Paul teaches them the purpose, the purpose of a worship service. That's good to know. Why do we come together? What's the purpose in coming together? He says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, each has a, revel a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Then he wraps it up in, in what the purpose of the worship service is. Aorist, middle, imperative. This is a command, a command. And it's an aorist tense, do it. That's like a Nike commercial, just do it. It's in the middle voice, don't make me have to tell you, you make your own choice to do it. Let all things be done. Let this be your motive. Let all things be done for edification. And one more time, the word edification is the word that means to build a house, to build somebody up in the faith. And the only way to build them up is in the word of God. So whatever you say, whatever you sing has got to be for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. That's the purpose of a worship service when you come together. Now let's look and see how he arrives. At, oh, he is so good. I, when you study Paul's letters as much as we have, certainly you've picked it up already, particularly Romans. What a lawyer this guy is. I mean, he builds a case and you think, hey, there's your answer. And he says, good, I was gonna say that next. You know, and he leads you right to where the answer is before he even tells you. Well, he starts off, he says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm. Now you gotta decide, are you gonna take this inclusively or are you gonna take it restrictively? Now, what am I mean by that? If you take it inclusively, everybody comes with a psalm. <laughs> You're missing, I think, what he's saying. However, he's already alluded to the fact that this was the kind of chaos that they had there. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. Because of that last phrase of the verse, everything must be done for edification, I think he's doing it more in a restrictive sense here. In other words, there are people who have the gift of singing and have the gift of, of, of music and they prepared and they're coming to put some order in the church. And, and it's, you know, when Carl sung a while ago in the, in the song there, I love that song, The Anchor Holds. I mean, when I die someday, somebody tell them, sing that for me. I, I love that. I just love that song. It just does something every time I hear it. I wish I could sing like Carl. Sorry, rat. I can get pretty close in the shower. I can get real close in the shower. Uh, Diana gets in the car and goes out shopping during those times. I really wished I had that ability. I'm so grateful for a choir like we have and the musicians and Tim and all the ones that do what they're gifted to do. So here he's not speaking inclusively. Everybody comes in and wants to get up and sing. That, that's the chaos that was already going on. He says, no, no, no. And the word has there. Everyone has the, the, the uh, a psalm. The word psalm, first of all, is the word Liddell and Scott says, means a song that is sung to the accompaniment of a harp. So he's talking about a song here. Everyone who has it, it would be better translated when you assemble each one who has a psalm or a song. And the word has would imply that they've prepared to sing it. Have you ever heard somebody that didn't have the ability to sing? That didn't prepare to sing it? <laughs> Oh, I got two stories coming to my mind. My friend of mine told me, he said, he went to this meeting, this guy got up and said, I want to thank everybody. They called him up to sing. He said, I'm going to sing you a song here in a minute. He said, I want y'all to pray for me. I'll do the best I can. I've been coughing up this old green phlegm all week long. And he said, I'm going to try my best to sing it. 
That's true. That's what happened. <laughs> that was a blessing. You know what he was doing? He was setting the people up for the worst thing they'd ever heard in their whole life. We were in Romania several years ago, and there was a lady there, bless her heart, and Mia caught Oglici, was sitting right beside her. I could whip her. I'm up front. Everybody's looking at me. Mia had her back to the people so she could laugh. And this woman had about two teeth in her head, and she, was, she wasn't singing. She was making noise, loud noise. Had nothing to do with the tune or anything else. And I looked over at Mia, and Mia is grinning from ear to ear. And I'm standing up front. I can't laugh. That's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Ma'am, I'm telling you what, I know you're not all doing it at the same time, but would you just be quiet? You don't have the gift. You know, it's interesting to me that he starts with a song, with singing, and that's the way their, their services probably started, just like ours, started with singing. And then he goes on, he says, and he who has a teaching. That'd be sort of chaotic if everybody came with a song and everybody came with a teaching. We'd be here a while, especially if they did it all at the same time. The word teaching is the word, and there's two words for teaching. This has to do with the content of what's taught. Didakin. The word didaskalia is the word for the method of teaching. Didakin is what is taught. And boy, that fits right exactly with what he's saying. If you're going to stand up and speak in a gibberish, how in the world is anybody going to understand anything? There's no content to what's being taught. So again, he speaks of one who teaches and the content that he teaches. Of course, that must be the word of God to edify the people. Paul may have used... Uh, this word, uh, uh, to do the, exactly that, just to bring them to the point that everything you say, everything you sing, in order to edify the church must be understandable in a language which all can comprehend. If they thought that speaking in tongues was the predominant thing, speaking in these ecstatic utterances, Paul just popped their bubble by choosing that particular word, the dakia. Because the daskalia would be the method. The dakia has to be the content. There is no content to gibberish and a language that nobody can understand. And then he says, he who has a revelation. Now the word revelation is a word we are very familiar with. Apocalypsis, that which is a disclosure of something, that which uncovers something. You see, and, and we, we want to make it mystical. This is what everybody loves to read into this. But it's not mystical at all. When you sing and when you teach, you're revealing what God has given to you. And so he who sings, he who teaches, with, and he who has a revealed word from God that identifies with the word of God, and he'll go on. We won't preach on it this morning. But he said every prophet always measures the other prophet. In other words, you just can't get up and say, God gave me a word this morning. No, sir, the other prophets are sitting there. Does it match the word of God? And if it doesn't, then sit down. It's not edifying anybody. It's just making you feel better that you thought you had a word. We used to have a sign out front that says, be careful. It says, uh, when somebody comes to you with a word from God about you, make sure you have a word of God about you first because <laughs> you need to compare the two. He made it, it might have been pizza he had the night before. Now, if you stop and go back for a minute, if you stop and go back and remember the context, Paul has already covered these bases. This is not something we're bringing up that's new this morning. We're just pulling in what we've already learned. In verse 19 of chapter 14, he says, In the church I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And that still holds true in what he's saying right now. That's what edifies people. That's when people are built up. In the next two areas, it's the next two areas that Paul's really concerned with, though. Even though he subtly brings in singing and teaching and the revelation of, of that which God's word will bring. But then he brings in the next two. And he just, isn't it, isn't it neat the way he just sort of fits them in? And he hadn't said much yet about them. 
And he says in verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm. Each who has a teaching, who has a revelation. Then he says, who has a tongue, who has an interpretation. Remember that little who I'm inserting because it would be a better way of translating that. Has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now here we go, here we go. Here's where we jump into the deeper waters. He just eases it in. He says a tongue. Now is he talking about a tongue in the sense of a language that people can understand? I don't see why he would be because every time he does that, he puts it in the plural. Or is he talking about that gibberish that's going on in Corinth, which he's identified all the way through the chapter in the singular, which it is here, a tongue. Now you have to make up your own mind. I'm not the authority on anything. The Word of God is its own authority. But my opinion is, my mind has been made up. I think he's talking about that gibberish and he just eases it in. What a tactic. What a tactic. I believe that we have identified that when he uses the term a tongue. He's referring to the gibberish at Corinth. I think he's point, referring to this point. Look at the last phrase again, that all things be done for edification. Already you're beginning to see, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something in here that's not working. This is inconsistent. <laughs> Hang on. He says, and then he adds to that an interpretation. The word interpretation, hermeneia. We get the word hermeneutics from. It's the word in its restricted meaning to take it out of one language like happened to me in that little village in Romania and putting it into another language to where they can understand it. Now, the first thing that's got to come to your mind is a little bit of a problem here. Hold it, Paul. I, you're losing me. Uh, has a teach, has, a, has a, 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 a song, has a teaching, has a revelation, but now, whoa, I'm confused right here. Because the word interpretation, Paul, we'd say to him, Every time you use it from chapter 12 through 14 is a tag to the plural tongues because there is a gift of being able to understand languages, a linguistic gift. And if it's a language that can be understood, then somebody's going to have the gift and the ability to translate that language. But Paul, what are you doing here? You've associated interpretation this time with the singular, which means that gibberish, Paul, that's an impossibility. And Paul would look at you and say, you got it. You see his subtlety? You see what he's doing? It's an incredible man. Gifted of the Holy Spirit of God. He's got a way of doing it that you just can't get around. There's no interpretation for this gibberish. Isn't it funny? He starts off the chapter and says, hey, this stuff is nonsensical. And then he comes and says, matter of fact, it's baby talk. He's trying to get at them. Remember? He says, where at? Wherefore? All right, I give up. I'll go at it another way. It's baby talk. We talked a little Holland last night. Dinah was telling me, and Holland's... <laughs> We asked her where her daddy was. Eric was at some concert with the young people and she said, he's at a convert. <laughs> That's so sweet. I love babies. They just talk so silly. And Paul said, it's cute when you're little, but it's not cute when you're supposed to be grown up. Quit acting like little babies. You say it's an impossibility. And he says, <laughs> you, you're right. That covers it. Now you say, Wayne, you're stretching this. No, no, you haven't read far enough yet. Hang on, he'll show you. Paul has just singled out the offending element of their worship services by just easing it in. And he's saying, hey, this guy's got a song. Isn't that great? And this guy's got a teaching and a revelation. And look here, this guy's got a tongue. And this guy's got a interpretation. That's odd. How do you interpret a language that's not a language? That's interesting. Now watch. He teaches them on the purpose of worship. The purpose is that everybody be edified. You don't come together to hear a gibberish and there is no interpretation for that gibberish. Now again, I know some of you think, Wayne, you're pushing this, you're pushing this. No, I'm not. Look at the second point. Now Paul tightens the noose 
on the practice of speaking in a gibberish. Now look at verse 27. Look what he goes right to. He goes right to the throat of the issue. If anyone speaks in a tongue. He didn't say if anyone teaches, if anyone sings, if anyone gives a revelation. That's not his point. His point of those last two. And he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn and let him interpret. Watch. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and speak to God, but don't you let him stand up in church and do anything. The little word if there is another word for concession, giving a concession. E-I-T-E, E-T. It's a little different than most of your words for if. It means to give a concession. It's like you feel the frustration. It's humorous to me. It's like Paul says, all right, all right, all right. You're not going to listen to me anyway, Corinth. You're so smart. You don't need somebody to tell you. All right, all right. You're going to do it anyway? Then you better do it this way. And Paul puts an order to it. Now watch his order. And again, he raises a hypothetical impossible situation. He said it should be by two. Or at the most three, what was going on? Man, they were all getting up and speaking this thing. And he, he said, people walking in, they think you're nuts. You're crazy. If you're going to do it, narrow it down. No more than three, two or three. What is he saying? He's saying that my concern is you're killing your testimony in this community. Lost people think you're out of your mind. So at least narrow it down to two or three. And he doesn't leave us hanging. He knows what he's doing. He says, and each in turn. Not, not, not at the same time. No, 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 no. Two can't do it at the same time. Three can't. Uh-uh. One and then another and then another, but no more than three. And then comes the clincher. And let one interpret. Now, boy, when you read that in English, you say, I got it, I got it, I got it. Whoa, go a little deeper than that. When you take one language out of another, which is what we're doing this morning, hermeneia, <laughs> explaining what that language means, sometimes it doesn't come out as clearly as you think you, you have it. There'll be, a, when there's nothing but gibberish, the word for one, if there's, let one interpret, normally would be a specific word with the gift of interpretation. Is that not correct? We've been, we saw that back in chapter 12 and every time there's a gift of that, but not here. This is not the word. The word here is if let anyone interpret, <laughs> because we're not talking about the gift of interpretation now. If anybody in here can interpret it, then interpret it. If you're going to do it, you're going to have to do it my way, Paul says. You're going to do it, not more than three of you. You're not going to do it at the same time. Now, by saying not more than three of you, that was already popping the bubble of everything that was going on in Corinth. They were all getting up and doing it at the same time. He says, no, no, only three. And if you're going to do it, after each one has done it, let somebody get up and give anybody who thinks they can and let them give an interpretation. And again, the question comes, Wayne, I thought you said if it's a tongue, there is no interpretation. There's not, but look what he does. He says, but if there's no interpreter. Now, that's a hypothetical if. It's, it's, what? You mean there's no interpreter? <laughs> I wish we could get the feel of this. It, it just loses something when it's just written in, in the way it's written. It's, we kind of lose something here. He's saying, there's no interpreter? Then I, I'll tell you what you do. Keep Silent. Now, I hear somebody already raising the objection. Hold it, hold it, hold it, Wayne. I don't think it means it. Well, it's fine. I, I'm not the absolute. You can't fire me. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's just my opinion. That's the way I see scripture. But let me ask you something. Let me throw it right back in your face. Me, and if you're throwing that at me, I'm going to throw it right back at you. All right, all right, all right. Stand up and give an interpretation. Who checks the interpretation? 
If you can answer that for me, then maybe I'll listen to what you've got to say. I had a friend of mine that memorized the 23rd Psalm in the Hebrew and went to a meeting like this and stood up and gave the 23rd Psalm in Hebrew and a man got up and gave an interpretation. But it wasn't the 23rd Psalm. And immediately they realized the embarrassing situation and escorted him out and never missed a stride. Went right on doing what they were doing. Now folks, think as Paul said, grow up in your mind. Reason it out. Oh, I heard him give interpretation, Brother Wayne. Well, good. Did you check out the interpretation? How do you know that's what was being said? How do you know that? By the way, if it's every time I've ever heard anybody give an interpretation, it's right out of the Word of God. I don't know why in the world we just can't come to the Word of God. You know what Paul says? Just preach the Word of God. What do you need somebody to stand up and tell you what God's already told you? Is this, does this do something for us? Is it a fix? What's the deal? Nobody's being edified. Well, if you just look at the chapter again and look at the different approaches, he comes at it from here it is, can't you see it? And then he says, oh, good grief. Then he comes around this way. And then he just, okay, let's do it this way. He's trying to get them to think and he's come at it from every approach you can possibly imagine. But the conclusion is, the whole emphasis of what he's saying, the whole emphasis, whether you agree with me or don't agree with me, the whole emphasis is when you come together for an assembly of worship, it is for the purpose of edifying. Building up, and there's only one way to edify people, and that's in the Word of God. Whether it's sung, whether it's taught, revealed, whatever it is, it's only in the Word of God. Now, whether you take, take the Scriptures any way you want to take it, but if it's not edifying and building up the body of Christ, it's missed the purpose for which worship services are for. He's saying, oh, Wayne, you're awfully tough this morning. Well, I, sometimes I, maybe I think I am worse than I am. I don't know. Do you forget the church that we're dealing with here? I think sometimes we get into this and we lose total sight of what we've studied for 104 messages. This is a sick church, well taught upside down. They won't even deal with known sin in the church. Oh, you're so spiritual, and yet you'll sweep sin under the rug in chapter 5. You're so spiritual doing this stuff. Uh-huh, that's really a manifestation of God when you sue each other the drop of a hat. You're so spiritual that you can't even keep away from the immorality of Corinth. I have to tell you to run from it. You're so spiritual, your families are upside down. You, don't, you even think that sexual intimacy in marriage is a sinful thing. What's wrong with you people? Chapter 8 through 10. You're, you have grace in your head, but you don't have it in your heart. You're walking all over, you weaker brother. Matter of fact, that would be a good argument. If you're going to stand up and speak in a, in a gibberish, what are you going to do to the weaker brothers who just came out of that idolatrous, idolatrous practice? Walk all over They wonder, what in the world are you doing? Then in chapter 11, every time you come together, you desecrate everything God represents. And then we get into chapter 12, 13, 14. And you have to feel the heart of the weight of the matter. The problem is the gibberish that's going on there is nothing more than an emotional frenzy that they get themselves into, and yet they're calling it of God. Years ago, I had a situation occur in my life, and I think some of you were there. I know in the first service we had some that were there. I do not remember what it was for. It's at the Trade Center. Diane and I were there. Uh, many of you perhaps were there. I just don't remember what it was for. It was about 15 years ago. I can't really remember yesterday, but 15 years ago. 
We went to a meeting and it was so great. All the different denominations in Chattanooga were, were called together and singing was wonderful, just beautiful like it is in our church every Sunday. And the preaching was good. Don't worry, I didn't do it. I had a good preacher. They, the preaching was good. Everything was just so uplifting and edifying. Right at the end of the man's sermon, a man stood up in the middle of everybody and began to spout off something he, I guess, thought was a sign that he was spiritual. And, I mean, it was just a babbling. That's all it was. And he was loud. I mean, he overshadowed the speaker. The speaker had to be quiet. And everybody there just froze, even the people that came with him. So it wasn't a matter of us not being used to it. Oh, somebody would say that. No, I'm talking about his own people. As a matter of fact, the pastor was one of the pastors of the church he represented and just, in, just totally humiliated that this man did that. And the chaos that came into that meeting the lack of sense of the Spirit of God, the, everything was just broken, ripped apart by that one man's fleshly, emotional experience that he thought would tell everybody he was really spiritual before God. And the pastor who was speaking had to call him down and shut him up. Welcome to the church of Corinth. That's what we're dealing with. Pitiful. Pitiful, pitiful. Now, if I can say it enough to get you to get into the context and understand how sick this church is, then you can begin to understand why Paul takes so many different approaches trying to get across the very same thing. He says it over and over and over again, but in a different way. You've got somebody who, who can't interpret? Is that true? I mean, somebody, you tell, you're kidding me. Then let whoever it is that spoke in that language, be quiet, shut up. And if he's going to speak at all, speak to himself or speak to God, but don't let him speak in the assembly. You're bringing confusion to everything God represents. Remember years ago, and I've alluded to this before, when I preached on 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm praying that God will burn those messages because I hadn't studied 1 Corinthians 1 through 11. <laughs> so I'm glad now that I can see it in this context. But I, I did preach a message on it. Now, that's the day I had the, the bulletproof vest and the ride helmet. Jerry Morris brought that over to me that day. He didn't know why I was bringing it, but I hid it behind the pulpit. And I told him, I said, some of you are going to be sad and mad or glad today when I tell you where I am when it comes to this issue of speaking in a, in a tongue. And I put that vest, I said, somebody's going to want to fight. And I put that thing on, put that ride helmet on. I mean, <laughs> my daughter was sitting over there and some guy was visiting and said, who is this guy? I said, I don't know. I've never seen him before in my life. <laughs> I mean, it embarrassed everybody. I'm, I, but I was just trying to relieve the tension. Remember what I said then, and it holds today. It holds today. And I said, if you don't agree with me in this church that that somehow is a spiritual, whatever you want to call it, I said, that's fine. I can't make you think anything. I can just try to tell you what I believe God's Word says. But I'll tell you what. If you do disagree with me, whatever you do at your house is between you and God. You're going to have to work at that with Him. You will stand before Him one day. You will answer one day. But I said it then, and I say it now. Don't ever bring it into this church. Don't ever. Don't ever, as long as I'm standing up here, bring it into this church. I will publicly nail you from the pulpit in the sense that I'm going to identify you and I'm going to have our ushers escort you out of here. You have just disrupted that which edifies the body of Christ. You say, well, Wayne, what if you're wrong? Well, if I'm wrong, I'm going to be wrong. If you point in five different directions, folks, you point in no direction. We're going to point in a direction that what we do when we come together is going to be to edify people in the Word of God. Whether we sing, whether we teach, 
whether we preach, it's going to be the revealed Word of God. And that is where we're going to stand. So in case there's any questions as we go through this, well, Wayne, if I'm in this church and I, I disagree with you, can I stay? Hey, you can stay all long as you want to stay. I'm not the last word. But on this subject, I am. Till a few months from now. <laughs> That's just the way I see it. Strong as I can say. And I see it stronger today than I've ever seen it. And by the way, we're not through chapter 14 yet. Paul's got a lot of other things to say before we finish that continues to drive the nail deeper and deeper and deeper. When we come together, it's to edify from the Word of God the people of God, whether we sing or whether we preach. Well, I love you. You've been very kind to me in this. No rocks have been thrown, and I haven't even had to dodge a bullet yet. I haven't even had any anonymous letters. You've been very kind to me, very kind. Thank you. Let's continue to walk through it together. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 